recognize it or not, we are constantly being shaped and reshaped by the world we live in. It's, it's just going to happen because there are cultural waters that we swim in that we will fail to recognize because it's just all around us. We don't often recognize until much later what has been shaped within us, the way that we think, the way that we act, the things that we think about the future, the fears that we have, all of these things. And some would suggest, and I think there's some legitimacy to this, that we're living in a post-Christian era, or at least moving in that direction. And Mark Sayers, he's an Australian pastor, uh, speaks in his book, Disappearing Church, Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith while gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Think about what uh, Jacob preached a couple of weeks ago on the call to being holy. Right, That's a restraint on the individual will. will. And elsewhere, he says, what we are experiencing is not the eradication of God, Uh, from the western mind but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority god is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and the massager of the personal will mark sayer says this has been described by a phrase expressive individualism now individualism in our culture is not new If you went to school, you might have learned about Alexis de Tocqueville, the Frenchman in the 1800s who wrote about his concern about the individualistic bent that American culture had. That hasn't changed. That's not new. But where we are in a new place is the explosion of social media, for one, but just in general, the platforms that we all have individually where the world can increasingly be focused on the self because the camera, think about our cameras, right? They're trained on us so much of the time. Now, I'm not, those things aren't all bad. Don't hear me say that. But don't miss that those things impact our theology, our view of the individual, the place of the church. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, was writing in 2011 And he said, speaking of university students, they're sent off into this world with this theology ringing in their ears. So he says, sample some of the commencement addresses that you can watch. And you see that many graduates are told, follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beach of your own drummer, follow your dreams, and find yourselves. You see the focus, it's all inward. He says, this is the litany of expressive individualism, where the self is enthroned and who we are is shouted out from the modern day rooftops, wherever those may be. And we must reckon, reckon with this influence on our reality. We are much more isolated and individualistic than we may often realize. We're being led to believe that the shaping of our own identity and the molding of our own futures is what really matters. But even as I say that, the answer for the follower of Christ is not to return to the good old days, some sense of nostalgia, 
nor is it shouting even louder to compete with all the voices around us and their messages. And it's not doubling down on our authority or our corporate authority. Instead, it's to return again and again to the one who shapes the identity of the church for eternity. The one who is leading us into this world, even while we may be exiled from power and influence or acceptance. And so my theme this morning is this, is that Christ shapes our identity as the people of God. That's the one to whom we return again and again. And I want to ask two questions to make that to to show that theme. Whose are we? And who are we? This is really what Jacob introduced to us or or told us about. May not be new to you a couple weeks ago of the idea of the indicative and the imperative. Who you are or whose you are impacts who you are, what you are to do in this world, how you're to walk with the Lord. So let's start with whose we are or whose are we. Let me ask it that way. And before you are someone or something, you belong. You have an identity. Each one of us has a story about where we come from, right? Where we were born, the family that we were brought up in, the culture. Were you raised in the deep south or were you raised in the north? Were you raised out west or did you come from the east coast? We have these types of stories. What did your parents do for a living? How did they raise you? What were the things that shaped you? You belonged in that place to those people and those things shaped you. We know that. And there's a tremendous influence because of that reality, where I come from and who I belong to. And there are tremendous blessings in that. And there are also difficulties that I can spot. And I thank the Lord for the blessing. And I ask for his continued work amidst the difficulties and whose I am is where things start and that's true also of our spiritual lives when we are given a second birth there's my first birth I can tell you well I can I can sort of tell you about it right I can tell you what I've been told what I know I can tell you about those first years in that way but I can also tell you about the new life that I've been given in Christ and chapter one talks about our being born again Verse 1, 3, and verse 23, which I said last week, emphasizes that the work of God is necessary in order for us to have new life. And it must come through Christ. And that's emphasized in this passage, both explicitly and implicitly. I belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. And we start there. So we ended last week with verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And now look where Peter goes. As you come to him. So he's talking about the Lord. But we see that the shift is. Or not shift. But it's referencing Christ. And we know that God is good to us in Christ. And as you come to him. A living stone rejected by men. But in the sight of God chosen and precious. He starts there. Jesus is the one that we must come if our lives are going to have meaning. 
the world is telling you to find meaning elsewhere. I'm telling you, Scripture is telling you, Peter's telling you, find it in Christ. And this way that this is written as you come to him, it's, it's emphasizing that this is a continual daily action. As you come to him, keep coming to him. It's what we do as a church. We come to Christ and we never stop coming to Christ. He is the living stone, the rock on which we base our church and our spiritual lives. You yourselves, verse 5, are like living, st- like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Jesus is the living stone upon which then we can build. This points to his resurrection. Just as we have life in his resurrection and are born again to a living hope, as we saw in chapter 1, we are now called living stones because we come to him, the living stone, the one who has been resurrected. He is our firm foundation. Jacob actually chose how firm a foundation for us to sing this week, and I I vetoed it because we just sang it back in uh, September, but his impulse was right. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Or you may know a more modern gospel song titled Firm Foundation. Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. When everything around me is shaken, I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus because he's never let me down. He's faithful through generations. So why would he fail now? He won't. He won't. That's the song as it, as it goes on. And then Peter takes this imagery and he shifts it from the, the, the rock of Christ and our being like these stones. And then he gives us the imagery of the temple or a spiritual house as we heard in verse 5. And what you build on matters. So Peter's saying you're building on the, the chief cornerstone. That's the rock that matters. But not everyone will do that. And we know that there are those who reject Christ. Uh, Jewish people rejected Christ in his day. Right? The Pharisees and Sadducees were against him. And so he became a stumbling block. As we see that Peter quotes from Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118 in these verses. And what Peter's doing is connecting these new Testament people with these Old Testament promises, just as he had done at the end of chapter one, when he quoted from Isaiah there as well and said, this is the this word is the good news that was preached to you. That good news about Jesus. So now this New Testament people of God, if I can use that language, is being identified by these Old Testament promises that are fulfilled in Christ. And these elect exiles were in the view of God even centuries before. And we are too. Now millennia past. So whose are we? We belong to Christ. He's the cornerstone of the church and the source of his life. Or the source of our life comes from his 
we are being built up in him. Verse 10 is more implicit. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, we see in other parts of Scripture, where does that mercy come from? Well, it, it comes from uh, Christ, right? God's mercy is poured out to us through Christ. And all of this is plural. And we'll see this uh, repeatedly. But Peter is speaking to the church as a whole. God does not work with people in isolation. He's speaking And this word is to the community of faith. And it requires each one of us to fulfill what we are called to be as we are made new in God. So, could you be a spiritual house as a single stone? Just one part, right? It takes us all. We are living stones being built up as a spiritual house or you also see the language of priesthood plural it's all of us now that's probably not language you're used to thinking about we don't generally refer to ourselves in that way we also have to recognize that we're conditioned and it's hard for us to think of ourselves in a corporate way but the only time in the new testament that the word priest in the singular is used is when it's applied to christ But the corporate is applied to the church as we follow him in what he's doing. It's hard for us to think of ourselves this way. In fact, as I was starting my work on this sermon, I almost had it. Actually, I started with whose are you instead of whose are we? Because I automatically start with the individual. Now, of course, we're all a part of that. And it takes us individually But we are never intended to be alone. So I've told this story before. It comes from Richard Mao. He writes this, uh, I think, in a book uh, that I have. And uh, he was sharing a story about this Catholic priest who was visiting the Deep South for the first time from New Jersey. And he saw on the breakfast menu at the hotel that he was staying in that or whatever restaurant that he was at, that so many things had these combination meals came with grits. And so he turns to the waitress and says, Miss, what is a grit? And she replied, honey, they don't come by themselves. Right? Grits don't come alone. They're together. And maybe with some butter or cheese or that sort of thing. I often think about that. I think about those when I'm eating grits. I think about that. And Mao says to follow Jesus is to be a part of a community. Now, again, Mark Sayers says there's some widely held beliefs that we are seeing currently. They're not all necessarily new. They're not all necessarily bad. Um, But when they're combined with where we are in the world, it becomes a cocktail of poison to the soul and to the community. So think about this. I'm not reading them all, but here's a selection of them. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Secondly, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulation, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. 
The primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. You see the theme. Or last one, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. We are living with the effects of these beliefs and we are not all okay. Look at the statistics around mental health. Look at the statistics around suicide. Look at the statistics about how we are doing in all sorts of ways and the trends are not good. Christianity, rightly understood and applied, leads us into a much bigger story. Because anything that I create on my own will always necessarily be limited and small. Even if I don't see it that way. Even if I'm not led to believe that. But in Christianity, we're able to live in and live out the story of redemption and a new community of faith in God through the church. And so Thursday morning, this happens sometimes, I'll just wake up thinking about stuff because I've just, I'm always thinking about this stuff, as you can understand. And, and so the word is I'm kind of in that semi-awake state, you know, where you've woken up, but you're not quite awake. Maybe the dog woke, it's always the dog waking us up. And so the thought, the phrase that just kept going through my mind is this, the gospel is received, not achieved. We receive the blessing of belonging to Christ through receiving the good news of what Jesus has done. Christ rejected on our behalf achieves our salvation so that we can receive the mercy and grace of the Lord. We receive what is on offer to us. And as we do that, his mercy and kindness, his grace and forgiveness were brought in to this new community. And so we belong. Whose we are matters. And then that begins to shape who we are. And so I'll ask, that, I'll ask it like this. I think this is how I put it in the notes. Who are we? So we ask first, whose are we? And now we ask, who are we? Well, this group of people, as you've heard me say frequently, they're under pressure, they're exiles, they're aliens, they're strangers. And that is a part of their identity that Peter rightly acknowledges. And yet, against the backdrop of this reality is the reality of God's blessing and their identity in Christ. And how we are blessed and who we are in Christ leads us then to implications on our lives individually and corporately. While the church is made up of individuals, yes, all of us, we are individuals. We must recognize that scripture addresses us together frequently. How we love one another, we saw last week. What we crave, what we long for. And recognizing that it is not the world that defines us. It is God who defines us. So he says we're a spiritual house. Lots of stones, living stones brought together. And then some of my favorite verses in scripture. Particularly as again, these Old Testament promises and realities of God's people are brought to bear into the New Testament. So Peter is, he's mainlining Exodus 19.6. Go look at Exodus 19 and you'll see this language. And yet there is a key change. The difference is the tense. 
In Exodus 19 tense, the, t- the tense is future and conditional. If you will, you will be. You shall be. But in this passage, Peter describes the identity of the church as certain. You are because they belong to Christ. The reality of Christ and his work shapes the reality of the church. And think about this, these people who receive these words. How important it would have been for these believers to hear, especially when doubt is brought about by their circumstances, by their trials, by their suffering. What Peter says is you're not defined by those things. You're not defined by the empire. You're defined by Christ. Peter affirms the church and its identity before God, and it's no small thing. So he says, but you... You are a chosen race. God's loving initiative in bringing the church into being is emphasized. Chosen. That's where Peter started this book. We are chosen by God. Loved by God. Jesus says in John fifteen sixteen, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. Why did God choose us? Is there anything you'd like to put forward and say, well, God chose me because, I mean, after all, look at me. Right? There's nothing that you could put out other than to say it was God's gracious choice. And together, right? You see, this is plural. A chosen race. A people but also a royal priesthood. That language of priestly service has already been used in verse 5. We're to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So we constitute this new priesthood in the New Testament and beyond. As Romans says, we are to offer what? Our whole lives. Romans 12. To give our whole beings in sacrifice to God. No longer are we sacrificing animals because Christ has been sacrificed. So now we give our whole lives as a sacrifice of praise to the Lord and of service to the world around us. What did the priests do? They mediated between God and man. They declared that God, through their actions, is faithful and the God who forgives. So under the great high priest, we offer our prayers, we offer our love, we offer our sacrifice of our lives into the realm in which we've been placed, a royal priesthood we are, and a holy nation. Simon Kistemacher says the nation consists of citizens who reside in a given locale, obey rules and regulations, and strive for the well-being of their society. Citizens of a holy nation, however, have common characteristics through Jesus Christ. And if we compromise that reality, that characteristic, then we will compromise our witness and our identity in Christ. It does not mean that we have to be perfect, because we will always be far from it, but we cannot value what the world says we have to value if Christ says, that is not where I'm leading you. That's not where I'm calling you. That's not who you are to be. 
And then finally, a people for his own possession. You see how these are all plural. This is one of the greatest themes of Scripture, that God is creating a people for himself. You will see this repeated. And if you wanted to find one sentence that is a theme for all of Scripture, you could at least put this forward as one of the, uh, the possibilities. I will be their God, and they will be my people. God makes a declaration, and when he makes a declaration, he makes good on it. And so we are a people for his own possession. We're not just chosen, but owned by the Lord. And he is a good and gracious owner. And I know that seems strange language today. But you know what? We actually think like this. If you have pride in your family, for instance, maybe you don't, but you might pridefully, not in an arrogant way, say, I'm a Tisdale. That's who I am. I belong. And because I belong, this is how I am. Or I speak about my people. The people I love. The people God's placed in this community. I have that sense of ownership, of possession, not in an arrogant way, not in a domineering way. But in a way in which I say, you belong to me and I belong to you and I love you. And that's exactly what God does for us. And so we begin to be shaped and formed into God's people, which again is emphasized again in verse 10. Once we weren't that, but now we are. And we have a, this purpose then. This purpose for being these things is that we might, verse, the rest of verse 9, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The world is constantly shrouded in darkness. But we've been called into light, marvelous light. So we see ourselves and our world more clearly, and we worship the one who is the God of light and who lightens our darkness. It's a beautiful thing to be brought together into a church that we might be this expression of God's goodness and his excellence, his mercies and blessings given to us we want to be that city on a hill shining the light of god's love we've been called to do that to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out and so we worship and when we worship together we're saying there is something greater than us individually there's a story that's worth sharing there's a story we're singing about there's a story worth praying for and praying about. We hear God's word and we look to Christ and we do this not just in our corporate worship, but as we come together to love one another. As we pray for one another and submit ourselves to God's will, when we forgive each other our sins, despite those being against one another at times, when we love despite differences when we place ourselves under the teaching of the word, when we love the widow and the orphan and the destitute, when you make a meal, when you send a card, when you say a prayer, all these things were proclaiming the excellencies of our God because he's leading us, because we know he's given us a new identity that's shaping us into the people he's called us to be, and it's nothing that we accomplish on our own. 
God is the faithful one. And so we leave the results to him, and we do what he's called us to do. Who we are doesn't change on the basis of what's happening around us. Who we are doesn't change because of whose we are. I'll conclude with this. Y'all know we went to Boston a few weeks ago for our anniversary trip, and we did the Freedom Trail. So if you, it's a walking tour where you see various historic landmarks and you hear about the history and there's a guy dressed up like you know some historic figure and and you get to a point and i think this is on the trail but and if not we saw it it's the old corner bookstore which sounds great i love bookstores and this was constructed in 1718 and it's downtown boston's oldest commercial building and it was home to uh the 19th century publishing giant Pickner and Fields, they publish Thoreau's Walden, Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, Longfellow's Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, and there were other things that were published. And it's this beautiful building. You can still see the leaded glass on the second floor. And the building was going to be demolished, which is great, um, that it wasn't, I should say. <laughs> I should state that more clearly. It was going to be demolished in 1960, and it was saved and preserved and now it's a Chipotle. Not a joke. It's a Chipotle. And doesn't that seem fitting for our age? Instead of the work of slow words that shape, it's fast food that shapes in a different way. But we are a part of a much older building project, one that the Lord is shaping and molding for his glory through the work of his son. The Holy Spirit is leading us onward to fulfill what we've been given to do because of his name. It is Christ who shapes our identity as the people of God, and that will never be demolished. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and the encouragement of this word. There's so many layers here, but Lord, I thank you that you are faithful your promises, which are yes and amen in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us as a church to live out the identity that we receive from you and that you are leading us into. Father, we praise you and thank you for this time, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Whether we wreck whoa, here we go.